Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. One of the things that came together is something we've all been feeling as a country. We watched that drip, drip, drip of the stories and the leaks from the intelligence community about Chinese election interference. We called for an inquiry. We were still waiting, and there was so much pressure on this government, and they said, okay, but it's not being organized. And then there is more. The news about the two Michaels this week, where we had Michael Spaver saying that he he felt that he was in prison because his other hostage was dealing in an intelligence. So now we have a lot of questions about this global intelligence unit that has been referenced. And then there was the explosion in Niagara. We got a lot to talk about it. We have a wonderful guest. His name is Phil Gursky joining us live. President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil, let me ask you, did I leave anything out in that long list of things there? I mean, we have the two Michaels, we had the explosion in Niagara, and one more thing, I don't know if you've read it, but there was a piece in the Financial Times about Canada, and the opener was a grabber for us, said, you know, this country thought they were immune from foreign affairs that is uh, hot and dangerous, and now they're embroiled in a situation with India and also with China. Phil, you know, what a culmination here when it comes to intelligence and security. It's funny you raised those, and I throw in as well, Arlene, the uh, the, the finding in the Cameron Ortiz case in the RCMP yeah, where he was yeah. found guilty of uh, disclosing intelligence to people who didn't need it. You know, for a country that doesn't normally care about national security and intelligence, and I would throw most governments in that same same box, it's been one hell of a couple of months, hasn't it? And uh, there's a lot to talk about. And it, again, I think it shows a couple things. I, I think it shows our relative immaturity as a nation when it comes to these matters, our allies in the States and in Great Britain and Australia, et cetera, I think they do a better job of handling these matters because governments understand the value of intelligence, what to do with it. And we here in Canada, want to play Mr. Nice Guy, constantly apologizing to people. And maybe there's an old phrase, I think it was Henry Stinson in the States once in the 1930s or 40s said, you know, intelligence is, you know, uh, gentlemen, don't, re- don't read other gentlemen's mail. <laughs> Maybe that's what we have here in Canada. We don't deal with that to the same extent. No, we don't. And, you know, exactly what you're saying came up during the first, the CSIS leaks and all the intelligence officials that I talked to, they're, they, you could tell they didn't want to say it, but they said, we've had this for some time. Yeah. We don't really take it seriously. Are we starting to see that on steroids now, Phil? I, I think so. And I'm really glad you raised the whole Chinese thing. And, you know, I, I never worked on China, as you're well aware. I was a counterterrorism analyst at CSIS. But, you know, we've been, we collectively at CSIS and the intelligence community have been warning governments going back 20 years uh, on China interference in Canada. Maybe not to the extent of what happened in the 2019 and 2021 elections, but we've been essentially uh, giving intelligence to senior officials saying, hey, here's what we know about this. It's, the ball's now in your court. You may want to do something about it. And yet, you know, when the intelligence leaks came out, the government's reaction was, well, we didn't see that, which was problematic. Or, oh, we don't want to deal with that because it might lead to racist comments. I'm thinking, we have a nation that tried to steal our elections. 
or interfere with them. I mean, how can that not be taken seriously? And the Financial Times article here goes for that. You know, we have this, it's no small problem we have with China. What did this story this week about the two Michaels, and then we have even more coming out about it. How did that, how did that shine a light on this? Because as Canadians, we thought, okay, this is an exchange for the Huawei incident. And now we have the word intelligence coming up with Michael Spavor saying he felt that his, his fellow hostage had used his information as intelligence. What does this say to you with your former CSIS and <laughs> risk experience here? Um, well, it's important to know these are allegations, of course, that Mr. Spavor has made. So let's, you know, treat them as such. But what it pointed to is um, kind of the amateur way in which some departments within Canada treated intelligence. So the program that Mr. Kobe was accused of belonging to, and again, these are allegations, was called called the Global Security Reporting Program. And I remember when it came out after 9-11, when the then foreign ministry said, we have to collect security intelligence. I remember being at CSIS, and my colleagues and I saying, well, we do that. That's what CSIS, it's, mm-hmm. it's the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. That's what we do. And we all thought that this was done on the fly. It was a reaction to 9-11. Everyone, everyone jumped on the mm-hmm. intelligence bandwagon. And the colleagues I've spoken to, Arlene, have all said it was a, a really amateurish job. It was like a amateur hour at the zoo. And, and they put people's lives in danger. And, and if Mr. Spavor's allegations are true, may have played a role in incarceration. But it's much more complicated than that, I'm pretty sure. It is, but let's just put that on ice, our problem with China, which is not not getting any better. But then we're putting a, a focus on that unit, as you just said. I mean, we're finding out many things, and we're hoping that the officials read the emails, because we know they don't always do that. Well, and again, you know, you want your foreign ministry uh, to gather information. That's why you send diplomats abroad. They meet with high-level officials in various countries. They send back reports. I've read many foreign affairs slash defate slash external affairs, Canada, whatever the acronym is, you know, going back 40 years. And it was good information, but it really matters how it's collected. And intelligence services are trained on how to get the real good stuff that's kind of, you know, a little bit, um, how to say, you know, in dicey situations where you're meeting with sources whom, if they're found out by their host governments, you could be in real real danger. And we didn't believe at CSIS that the folks that ran this so-called GSRP program had any of that training in mind, meaning they didn't know about protecting sources, doing surveillance, etc. And it's almost that they sold themselves as this brand new intelligence gathering organization that in all honesty was rather superfluous, given that we at CSIS have been doing it for a better part of about 20, 30 years for that point. All right, let me ask you, as we brought up, we had this, um, you you brought it up as well, Cameron Ortis found guilty of breaching the secrets law. And, you know, it's a complicated trial, and we'll forgive some Canadians if they thought, I, I don't know if I can follow that, but at the end of the day, it was pretty simple. How did this guy get away with this for so long? Wow, this just adds to this compounding feeling that maybe our security isn't so great here in Canada. Well, I think the, 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 the silver lining for me, Arlene, is that the legislation works. Now, the Security of Information Act replaced the old Official Secrets Act. I remember being at CSE, which is Kennel Signals Intelligence, when we had the Official Secrets Act out, and I had a colleague with whom I worked disclose some very sensitive information in public, and nothing ever happened to this person. They got away with a scot-free, which makes us who are working say, well, what do you need to do to get arrested in this country yeah. when you trade secrets? <laughs> 
so the, the trial is a good one. Um, it appears to me, and I don't know a lot about the RSCP investigation, but were there signs that were missed? Possibly. But I think at the end of the day, uh, we've had a trial. He was judged by a jury of his peers. He was found guilty. And it shows that we can go to court um, when it comes to the very sensitive information. It has to be handled very carefully, obviously. But I think it demonstrates to Canadians that if you take the move to sell secrets to somebody who shouldn't have them, you're going to be dealt with, arrested, prosecuted, and hopefully found guilty. So pass the test. I, th- I think it did. And, and we'll see going forward if there are analogous mm. cases. Let's hope there's not too many cases going forward. You never want to have too many of them. But I, it, it, I think the proof is of the pudding is in the eating, as they say. And I, I think definitely this new act was shown to work. It is. And, you know, we also had the security. Well, it was this time last week. And the Halifax uh, security meeting was there, too. And Canada hosting this thing is kind of a different vibe now, I can imagine, for Canada. Because uh, before, I mean, we had all these oceans and we were impervious to it. And now we're like, well, we have a few problems. Well, yes, that's true. But um, I, I've got a, a bit of a bad news, uh, um, I guess, to share with you. What I'm hearing from my sources, and these include people who still work in the business, the intelligence business, a lot of our allies are asking questions of us. How serious are we? Really? Are we taking Chinese interference seriously? Mm-hmm. Are we treating terrorism seriously? And, you know, Canada, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stand up for CSIS and the RCMP and CSC and the other agencies. I, yeah, I've spent 32 years in the business. But I'm not sure our governments are standing up for them. And that's what worries me at the end of the day. We we rely very heavily on our alliances because we're net importers of intelligence. And if they see us as untrustworthy, worst case scenario, they may start cutting back on what they share with us. Yeah, and they think it's porous or it's not worth it. Phil, let's talk about the Rainbow Bridge. All the stuff that we've been... We've been discussing a little heady for people and they get their minds around it as we learn more about Chinese election interference. But we saw it. We all saw it. We felt it at the Rainbow Bridge. It was what could have happened. And there was a moment later on in the show, we're going to hear the personal story of the mayor. He, You can imagine he freaked out. He was at the dentist. He was at the dentist and went, this is the big one. <laughs> Phil, I'm kind of laughing because it didn't, it didn't happen. But boy, it showed us a lot, Phil. What were you thinking as that was unfolding? Well, I, I'll be honest, Arlie. When I saw, when I heard what happened, I guess it's, you know, when you work in counterterrorism and when you write six books on the topic, including a history of terrorism in Canada, back to Confederation, I, I, I'm destined to go down that road uh, and consider it as a possibility. And and if you recall, in the sort of the immediate hour or so, um, we weren't really sure what happened. People raised, raised the T word, the terrorism. But, you know, we had to be cautious because they were still gathering up pieces, literally and figuratively, in this one. Uh, I don't know if you saw the video on the name of the car going through the air. I, I thought I was watching Die Hard forward or something it was was so bizarre but what's interesting to me is how quickly uh, the fbi and uh, and one of their counterparts called the jttf the joint terrorism task force were able to eliminate the possibility or probability rather that it was terrorism so that shows how competent they are and i don't think i've had people online say oh they're they're covering something up i don't think they are i think they went through the footage they you know always found out who was behind the wheel etc etc and they concluded that this was not an act of terrorism, but it, 
boy, it sure grabbed our imagination for three or four hours last week, didn't it? It absolutely did. And as I mentioned earlier, I know that bridge. I worked one of my first jobs at the radio station in the Wonder City. And it always struck me and just how, how much is coming together. You know, they have, uh, they have the electrical, they have uh, the biggest, most powerful country in the world right there. Niagara Falls across the bridge. We have shared borders. We have four bridges. A lot could have gone wrong there, Phil. And considering all the stuff and the tension, and never mind the warning, yeah, the warning had just came out. So we we watched good news unfold and got a lot of compliments. The FBI, I talked to a former FBI guy, and he complimented Canada and, and the working relationship. So I'm glad you would agree. It's a very good work relationship. I mean, you know, those of us at CSE, my colleagues at the RCMP or at CSE, we, we work hand in glove with our American and, and British and other colleagues and, and allies around the world. But I, I think where it happened and how it happened, that's probably why people went down the initial analysis that it could have been terrorism. First of all, Arlene, we've had a lot of vehicular attacks around the world in London, in Barcelona, in Nice, in Edmonton back in 2017, outside of Commonwealth Stadium. So we know it's a modus operandi of terrorists. Secondly, it's a border post. And, you know, you alluded, I mean, how important is the border to Canada-U.S. relations? It's absolutely critical in both of our economies. So if if you were a terrorist, uh, you wanted to have the greatest impact using a a small-scale attack, just a guy in a car, what better place to attend? The border was closed for a couple hours. The airports were closed. You know, and if it had been something worse, think back to 9-11, how, how, you know, how long was the border closed back then? It was days. So, I, I mean, I understand why people consider the possibility it was terrorism. I'm just glad that, they, that the American authorities, with their Canadian counterparts, I'm sure, were able to, uh, you know, complete the puzzle and decide, yeah, we looked at this and we're pretty confident this, this was uh, some kind of freak event or accident and was not, in fact, an act of terrorism. Yeah, it is. It taught us a lot, though. And the way we we think about things, you're saying that people from other countries and or, or, or even people in intelligence are saying allies are starting to ask questions. How serious is, is this right now? You know, we're seeing headlines. Canada's lost its place in the world. As I mentioned, Financial Times, somebody sat around in a meeting and said, where do we need to turn our attention? And somebody there said, let's talk about Canada and their place in the world. How serious is it for you? And from a non, I'll ask you to go non-political, everybody, because it isn't just this administration. This is what we're seeing now, and they haven't they haven't improved it, and maybe made it worse. To be honest, but it's it happened before, according to intelligence people I've talked to. Well, in fact, you know, the initial warnings about China's interference I mean, go back to the 2000s under the conservative government. Yeah. And those warnings were ignored back then as well. So you're right. You don't need to get political here. I've always said that we have a very um, immature intelligence culture here in Canada. What I mean by that is most government officials don't get intelligence, don't trust it, don't want it, ignore it, et cetera, et cetera. And it is important for us if our allies, so you're probably familiar with the term the five eyes, which is the Anglo-centric mm-hmm. group of countries. As I said earlier before the break, we're a net importer of intelligence. If people start thinking that maybe Canada isn't the Canada they used to deal with, and again, I, I spent 32 years in the business and we held our weight. We definitely put, you know, we punched above our weight and we were a, a net, you know, we were a contributor to, to the the alliance. But if people start asking questions, then I'm not saying they're going to cut us off. I'm not going, I'm not that dire. Mm-hmm. But if they start thinking, geez, maybe the Canadians aren't as robust as they used to be, it could have consequences for them. And if we don't have the intelligence upon which to, you know, to give to governments, whether it's our own or allied intelligence to make better decisions and policies, I think we're going to keep a hurt here in Canada. 
Yeah, let's hope they let's hope they heard it. Final quick question. We only have a minute left. Phil, did they hear it? Do you think? Did they get it? Uh, I hope so, Arlene. But again, the you know, I, I looked at these statements by various ministers and the yeah. prime minister when the leaks the leak came out about China, and I was not confident. We have ministers who couldn't bother looking look at their inboxes. Oh, no. We're not over or, that. We're not or, over. Or, or officials are, are are passing stuff up to the. I mean, look at ministers are busy people. We all get that. But if you're not considering important intelligence on important matters, that's not a good thing for government power. We're sticking with Israel, and we're going to take another look. And stuff has been happening as this show has been going along. I see uh, pictures of Netanyahu in Gaza. We had a question earlier on about what the future holds. He, he kind of maybe answered that this afternoon. We're going to get more analysis, though. We're joined by Jacob Magid, who is the Time of Israel's U.S. Bureau Chief, joining us live. Jacob, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, let me ask you your impressions of how it's gone. Uh, you know, there was a few stalls and we're seeing the power of Hamas and they hadn't signed. And then, and then you know, back and forth and then America weighing in, all of it. And we have hostages being released. What are you seeing here, Jacob? Um, yeah, so today was the third day of a four-day truce that could be extended longer. Um, but we've had roughly... 13 Israeli hostages released for the past three days. In addition, um, several, about uh, over a dozen foreign nationals who are not Israeli hostages. Most of them are Thai um, foreign workers who are working in Israel who were kidnapped uh, during the October 7th uh, Hamas onslaught. And they have slowly been released as well. Um, there's an expectation that one more day we'll have a ceasefire where another roughly 13 um, hostages will be released, making it a total of 50. And then the agreement with Hamas is that if it, if it is willing to release an additional 10 hostages at least, um, Israel will extend the, the ceasefire for another day. Um, so there's efforts by Israel, or mainly the Qatari, Egyptian, and U.S. mediators to try to get uh, another day or two at least of, of a ceasefire. Um, there was some, as you mentioned, some delays mm-hmm. yesterday in Hamas implementation that were due to Hamas claiming that Israel wasn't upholding its end of the agreement regarding aid to the northern Gaza Strip. But actually, the Red Cross, which is uh, unbiased, uh, uh, indifferent or uh, uh, mediator in this process, mm-hmm. is actually are saying that's not the case. And that Israel did abide by that clause of the agreement. There was something else with the the prisoners of Palestinian, Palestinian prisoners that were being released, um, not by the age or the amount of time that, that they were served, which is apparently part of the agreement, which hasn't really been publicized. Um, but overall, that, that hiccup was uh, pushed forward, was kind of resolved. And that was yesterday, this delay that took place. But today, this third day went pretty smoothly. Yeah, so, uh, it did. For a fourth day, a fourth day, possibly tomorrow. Okay, I, w- I want to talk about that. You know, there's a lot of motion, too. And it's just kind of tied into this. And we see in, in the hugging, the renewal, and we're human. And, and it's so primitive to see back with your family, back with your mother, children, very, very emotional. As you say, there could be a, another, uh, it could be extended a little bit if there's more hostages. How does this complicate things? Does it complicate things for Israel? Some wonder, you know, how is it? Will they lose a little public opinion? Do they they have that chance of losing public opinion here where we've seen people together again? Is there a new pressure on this? Um, Well, I think the concern in Israel is is whether an extension of the ceasefire helps 
Hamas regroup mm-hmm. further. Um, and that's the main concern and why there's been reticence among some in Israel to agree to the ceasefire because they felt that they have Hamas on its back back feet right now. Um, but there is overwhelming support for this hostage deal um, because I think Israelis were looking at this as kind of a, a, a shot in the arm in terms of the public uh, the, the reticence and the, the feeling in the public that, that after so many days of, of horrible news, that, that now having these hostages come home, especially the women and children, um, such young kids, being among them is, I think, uh, enough to allow the Israelis to what they feel is move forward with this war until until Hamas is completely destroyed. Um, there is a concern regarding when you mentioned public opinion. Mm-hmm. I think um, Hamas is looking to use these four days to also kind of show the degree of complete damage that's been done to the Gaza Strip as a result of the Israeli bombing campaign, um, where we've got we're now at around fourteen thousand Palestinians mm-hmm. have been killed. We don't know exactly how many, a majority of them are believed to be women and children. Um, and Hamas is looking to kind of push the international community to use this time to maybe pressure Israel to not continue the bombing campaign. But given that the U.S. is totally supportive of allowing Israel to move forward with this war once the, the temporary truce is over, I don't think that that pressure is, is going to make as much of a difference. Um, this is not going to be a permanent ceasefire. All right. We've just seen and looked at pictures during when the breaks here of Netanyahu in Gaza vowing to pick up this war. The pressure on him right now is these, this hostages goes through, as you say. I mean, keeping that support of America and allies has to be supreme. Right. Yes. Uh, the U.S. support is critical. Um, and basically, the, it's conditions right now on this, this point that Israel take more steps to protect, to, to protect civilians in Gaza, that the feeling is that there at times in this ground campaign that the bombing that's been supporting the ground troops has been indiscriminate, quote unquote. Um, that's how Biden commented. He's noted that there's been improvements since that the, the operations that Israel's been carrying out around the hospitals in Gaza, particularly the Shifa hospital, which has been making a lot of headlines um, in earlier weeks where Israel and the U.S. have both agreed that Hamas is kind of running a control center underneath, that that operation's been better. It hasn't been as, as indiscriminate as in the past. Um, but the U.S. expects that once Israel now moves forward to the southern Gaza Strip, after operating almost exclusively in the northern Strip in terms of the ground troops, that before it does so, it needs to pl- explain how it plans to account for all these civilians that they've just shoved into the mm-hmm. southern Strip. Um, there's now 2.3, most of the 2.3 million population of all Gaza is now in southern Gaza, as if it wasn't crowded enough before. The same crowded conditions, and there has to be a clear place for people to go to avoid the bombing that's or the, the ground troops that are going to be pushing forward into the southern strip and that needs to happen before israel and launches launches the second part of this operation um, right. that's kind of been something that the biden administration is pushing all right jacob i want to ask you finally um, what are the chances of this extension in your opinion as you watch this um, the ceasefire, I do think we're good. there's an effort to get an, at least another day i think hamas uh, a few hours ago announced that it's for the first time formally interested in this additional time period. Netanyahu has said so himself as well. I think there's a feeling amongst Israelis that as long as we can keep getting a significant number of hostages out, that we are supportive of of extending the truce as long as we continue the, the battle afterwards. That's what they're saying. Um, so I, I do think there's a pretty good chance for this temporary ceasefire to extend past Monday. But, but beyond maybe two, three days, I, I think the expectation is that... Um, 
Jacob Magid, uh, the Times of Israel's U.S. Bureau Chief, joining us live here. Thank you, Jacob, for your analysis and reporting. We really appreciate your time on Sunday. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This war is thousands and thousands of miles away, but it's playing out on street corners everywhere we go. And it's playing out in families, and it's one of those those moments, isn't it? For me, what really stuck out this week, among many things, and there were many things, is the use of the word staggering by the police chief in Toronto when he talked about the increase in anti-Semitic incidents in the city of Toronto. All right, and we're going to begin with that. We're joined by Professor Anna Sternschiss, who's director of the Anne Tannenbaum Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Toronto. Professor, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me on. It's true. You know, as we look at this thousands of miles away and, you know, usually you have to work at a story and say, you know, this matters to you. We don't have to work at it. And unfortunately, it's right in front of our eyes, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I would say that it's astonishing how quickly um, Toronto residents turned into people who are just bothered by traffic, listen to the news, go about everyday business, and into people who deeply care and cannot tune off for a second about what's going on in the world. Our streets are now filled with uh, political flyers, and you know some of us walk by, and some of us cannot and stop at every one of them. All right. We're so focusing, people, yeah. We're focusing on Toronto as a national show here. We're talking to a national okay. audience. But it's the, you know, I'm not, it's, it's the same. We're going to talk about the staggering increase, the use of that word. But it is happening all across the country, too. Look at Montreal and everything. It, we are just been, I, I love what you just explained there. Canadians have been knocked out of our complacency. Yeah. It's interesting how you use the word staggering and you're quoting mm-hmm. that. But it is indeed astonishing how quickly the change happened. And every Jewish person in Toronto or indeed worldwide uh, has a story about what happened to them in the past five weeks. It could be a story of uh, uh, a family member in Israel being affected directly by violence or a story of a colleague who uh, is making some comments about, uh, you know, um, the understanding of the conflict and somehow asking for their Jewish friends or acquaintances about explanation. So it's very quickly, in a matter of weeks, uh, Jewish people became kind of in charge of explaining political situation without looking into nuance of what their political views are, how they understand it, or whether they even know this. It's true. It was just really dizzying how fast this changed. You know, the police chief in the city of Toronto, and I just want to focus on that for a while, that word staggering in the rise of anti-Semitism. I've never heard that before from a police chief in a in a big city. That's a big word to use. They usually downplay. They would say, you know, it's like concerning. And look, we're watching the the hostages and the and there's some good news here as it's happening. And I just I mean we don't know. We can't we can't predict things, but we're seeing emotion that's come up and I've been teary eyed watching and I'm sure you have too. Just as a human being just watching people hug each other again. Could that turn the temperature down? do you think? Or am I being a bit too hopeful here? 
Well, all this time I'm really hoping for empathy, both to hmm. people, Israelis, and also civilians in Gaza. Yes. Uh, empathy for pain. We've been watching the screen too. My son's friend uh, was um, kidnapped, and just today she came back home. Oh. And yeah, so it had some personal connection too. But um, it is quite depressing when the word staggering comes from the mm -hmm. chief of police. Mm -hmm. But you know what I was thinking? Um, as a specialist in violence and history of violence, I know that violence always develops step by step. I borrow here the concept I developed my uh, colleague, Dor Professor Doris Bergen, who wrote the book about the history of the Holocaust. And she mentioned that genocides always happen step by step. So in my mind, I keep thinking, is it really staggering? I mean, Toronto has been fighting, dealing with and the pandemic of swastikas in public schools, for example, there has been a lot of, uh, I don't know, microaggressions towards the Jews uh, using a lot of language like, I don't know, donor control, corporate control, all sorts of things that uh, imply some sort of uh, uh, negative uh, description of Jews. So... What happened was that now we're seeing the moment when those kind of minor-ish things are turning into something much bigger scale. Will it stop when the public attention turns to something else, or will it continue? I cannot know, but it is quite upsetting to see how widespread and how acceptable uh, expressing hostility towards Jews became in Canadian society lately. It is, and, and even now, do, do you, it's just bewildering, surprising, or maybe not, Anna, for you. Well, it's, you know, I teach in a discipline called diaspora studies, and uh, my students and I, we often discuss what it's like for, mm -hmm. um, you know, for people to feel that something that's happening on a national level is not happening to them. So, for example, when everyone celebrates Christmas and you're not Christian, how mm -hmm. does that make you feel? Yeah. Like you part of it, are you excluded and all this? And um, right now, I feel like the um, what I'm serving is history of people uh, in Canada, those who are affected by the violence in the region, people with relatives in Gaza, people with, uh, uh, you know, close ties to that area. Well, they can't tune out. You know what I mean? Like, this is really important what's going on there. And also... A lot of Jewish people cannot tune out, not only because of their ties to Israel, and not all of them do, but because they cannot forget uh, the fact that they're Jewish. It's uh, here. And uh, suddenly, um, you know, that change from uh, an average Canadian citizen, I don't know, a neighbor or a friend changes into a person who has to somehow address being Jewish for their friends and for their acquaintances, and for the world, too, even children. Yeah, it's true. A new kind of, a new kind of pressure. Is there, you know, there's a, a little bit of a release valve here watching the hostages. In a moment, we're going to get some analysis on what may happen or could happen and the new pressures. How are you feeling? I mean, again, the emotion of it, of it, is there... Is there a sense of a possibility that all the forces that came together to, that made this happen could make it go away? Or is there an inevitability here about uh, the ongoing war? 
we're too close to the point to get analysis of how, you know, things yeah. will develop for me at least. Uh-huh. But I can tell you that every morning I've been checking the names uh, of who gets released. I've been looking at photographs of people who get reunited with their families. I couldn't uh, stop thinking about people who got killed on October 7th. But I'm also looking at images from Gaza, and I cannot unsee tears and destruction uh, and pain in people's eyes Mm. there. And that, I don't know, overwhelming sense of... uh, destruction and violence and human yeah, suffering. Something's happened. There's a feeling that something's been unleashed. Something's happened here and we'll yeah. we'll all never we'll all never forget it. Professor Anna Sternschis is director of the Anne Tannenbaum Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Toronto. Thank you, Professor. Thank, thank you for having me. Right. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for covering the story. We've been t- uh, talking about a lot of emotion here today, hostages, how people feel, and, and how we all felt watching that scene that unraveled in Canada, the Rainbow Bridge. I'm glad to find out it didn't, the genesis of it, as we say, was not in Canada. We're about to hear really a, a first-person account from the mayor of Niagara Falls. Really, uh, what do you do when this kind of thing happens? We're going to hear a very personal story. I would like to welcome Jim Diodati, the mayor of Niagara Falls, Ontario. Thanks for having me, Arlene. All right. Wow. What a day it was for Niagara Falls and what a day it was for the Rainbow Bridge. And I, I, I can only imagine it must have been a terrible turn when you heard what happened in your office, in your life, when you learned that Niagara Falls was going to be the subject of much concern around the world. Well, Arlene, I jumped on the emotional roller coaster. I was just in the dentist chair at lunch and I had my phone on vibrate. So as soon as they were done, I turned my phone back to uh, having the sound activated and I looked down and I could see it was blowing up. I had received so many calls and texts and messages and emails from media and from frontline workers to you know, elected officials. And, and, and the words that jumped right off my screen was, uh, the bridges are closed. And I thought, I just felt this lump in my throat. I felt this knot in my stomach. And I knew that could not be a good thing when the bridges closed because no. the last time it happened was during COVID. And before that, of course, was 9-11. And I thought, you got to be kidding why are the bridges closed? What's happening? And yeah, right away. And then when I heard there was an explosion, of course, with all the things that are going on in the world, the wars and the conflicts and the protesting, I thought to myself, no, this can't be. We just finally got back to pre-pandemic tourism numbers. It's taken us a couple of years. I thought this can't be already. So yeah, it definitely put me on the emotional roller coaster. I, I can imagine. So you're you're in the dentist and then this happens. And when you say, as you say, the word explosion, we know the tensions, we know the warnings. Let's face it, that the governor had warned, certainly in New York State, that there was a high risk. What did you do and what did the city do? And how did you focus your attention on a situation that could have been really bad? Well, obviously, we hope for the best, but we prepare for the worst. 
and we had to get our EOC into action, our emergency operations center, and we're prepared for any kind of an emergency that happens. And we have these sessions where we practice with mock disasters. And, you know, we've been through a few things. And being in Niagara Falls, living in a border community with four international bridges, you have to be ready for absolutely anything, especially we know the, the, the nature of Niagara Falls being so iconic and high profile around the globe. Uh, having these international connections to the biggest economy on the planet, hosting the world's longest unmilitarized border for over 200 years. We know how we could be a target with our hydroelectric generating plants. And and there's lots of reasons why we know we're sensitive to border issues. So the initial reports were that it was an IED, it was a bomb. And, you know, we thought, oh, no, it can't be terrorism. Are you kidding Of course, that's right where your thoughts go immediately. In fact, my oldest daughter was born on 9-11. So for me, it's a yeah, real, um, you know, sensitive uh, date for me. So anyway, I want to ask you if we could just stop there, because it's interesting when you said the initial reports that the explosion was a bomb. Where were you learning there? Were they on the media or were you learning that from the emergency people on hand? Everywhere, because that was the intel at that time, because the the explosion was so violent it wasn't a typical automobile explosion and we didn't know because of course the vehicle was engulfed in black flames and extreme heat and flames and it was literally incinerated it was it was just an odd circumstance and the way it happened and it just the, it was so odd and when you watch the video it's not often you see a car airborne like that if no. anyone that's old enough to remember dukes of hazard I, that's what i thought of exactly oh, i am old enough to it, right and that's yeah. and that's that's what i thought of as soon as i saw it i thought to get a car that high in the air without a proper built ramp you know in a stunt person driving it mm-hmm. it would take a, a massive force so it right away led officials to believe that it was a bomb and also misinformation was about uh, was abound you know the talk was that the car had driven from canada so the story changed significantly as more details came out and you know there's the dilemma we have two things at odds number one get the information out as fast as possible and then the other part is make sure it's as accurate as possible well those two are sometimes opposing forces so if you if you get it all right sometimes it's too late you know and so the facts were changing as the, the day was going on, but we were in regular contact with our federal counterparts in Canada, our, our frontline workers, our emergency workers were in touch with U.S. frontline and emergency workers, governmental officials were all in contact, lines of communication were open, we were prepared for anything, and of course, our thoughts were you know, going to the idea that this was something really bad, and it was a terrorist attack, and then we were already going down that line of what's that going to mean next? There's going to be people stranded in the city. We're going to have to put them up in hotel rooms. We thought back to 9-11 and, you know, yeah. uh, the big come play. Come from away. And yes, come from away. And Gander and what happened in Newfoundland. And we, we started thinking, all right. You know, and, and I thought, man, that changed the world. It changed travel. It changed borders. It changed a lot of things for a lot of people. And again, especially growing up in a border town, when you would cross the border without even having mm-hmm. ID, to then meeting your firstborn to get across. So um, it was, uh, it hit us right in the gut. Everybody gasped 
And everyone jumped to the exact same conclusion, especially with what's going on around the yeah. world. Well, we had, you had to, and you had to plan. And I want to ask you that. Going by that assumption, and that was, as you say, and we, we know that that was the reporting earlier on, how far did it go? I mean, if it had been a terrorist attack, then what I was learning is if it was they expected more. How how broad did the concern go? Well, of course, all four bridges were shut down instantly, which was obviously out of an abundance of caution. And also given the fact that we remember from 9-11, it wasn't one crash. There were several crashes mm-hmm. and attempted crashes. So we knew what if what anyone might be doing, it might be coming from many angles. And so we expected where there's smoke, there's fire. And what else could be happening? So, of course, you have to jump to conclusions and you have to, as I said earlier, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And that's what we did. But the part that was giving me a little bit of a reprieve from the concern, and I didn't verbalize it, but I was thinking it because I said, what other borders are closed? What about Windsor? What about Sarnia? They said, no, they're still open. They're on high alert and the airport's on high alert. Buffalo Airport was closed. So I thought high alert. You know, that I wondered why that was, because during 9-11 and COVID, all 100 plus international crossings were closed. Shut right down. Shut right down. And there was no discussion. Boom, done. So I thought that was kind of making me wonder, maybe there's more to this. Maybe it's not as bad as they thought. And then, of course, as the FBI um, investigation concluded, we realized that it was not a bomb. It was not a terrorist. It was a, a sad situation, a bad accident that unfortunately took the lives of two individuals uh, long before their time. And for that, of course, we're very sad for them and for their families. But the silver lining is this could have been so much worse. And and I think it was a little bit of a, like the next day, I felt like when you wake up from a bad dream mm-hmm. and you go, wow, thank God that was a dream. And, and, and it just makes you stop and think for a minute. And I mean, it was one of those kind of days, an emotional roller coaster that we're just finally getting off. I want to ask you, you know, there was a moment here. There was a moment for me while I was watching and I'm wondering how you felt because we're getting your opinion here is when I saw the eyewitness account and it was from Niagara Falls, New York. And the guy in the account said, somebody said, well, you know, did you see it come over the bridge? He said, no, the car was in America. The car was here. The car was in Niagara Falls, New York. For me, it changed everything. Mayor Diodati, did it have the same effect on you? Well, it did, because I thought, I know that Americans can be very protectionist of their borders. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we watched that because we opened our borders up first after COVID. It took them several months later. And 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 I thought, this is it's just terrible, because especially if you live in a border town, you realize that we're very integrated. We're woven into the fabric of each other's community. And we'll have like myself, I've got family and friends on both sides of the border. I've got a lot of friends that live on one side and work on the other side of the border. A lot of people during COVID missed very important dates, weddings and funerals. A lot of people here on the border, we fly out of Buffalo. We don't fly to Toronto because it's much more convenient and it's a lot closer. Um, A lot of things are just like that. And of course, on the eve, and this is the part that made it sound so orchestrated, and too coincidental, on the eve of the biggest holiday in the U.S., their yeah. Thanksgiving, 
And, and we thought, you know, when their airports and borders are most busy, of course, this is the right timing for, for a terrible yeah. thing. So yeah. it seemed that it was well planned out, well orchestrated. And, and yet it was just so random. And it, so it just left us with an eerie feeling. Someone said to me, I, I feel like we dodged a bullet, you know? And, and I said, I, I know the feeling you're trying to describe. I have the same way. I feel like I awoke from a bad dream. I felt I was living it. And then as it, it didn't actually happen. And, and I felt relieved. I, I know. I think everybody did that. And I can certainly see it from your point of view. I mean, there you were the mayor and the whole world is watching. And as I told you, one of my first radio jobs was in Niagara Falls. I know it well. I know the bridge well. I drove over morning, noon and night and middle of the night and all, all of those things. I know that turn and I can't imagine how the city felt and how you felt. It wasn't just Canada. It was the entire world watching this you're you're exactly right and in the media interviews that i did were far and wide i did um uh, national media in australia and Mm -hmm. europe and of course all over the u.s and canada and and all the major media were lined up along the river road along the parkway (laughs) right videotaping it and it kind of reminded me when nick walenda did his tightrope walk over the falls (laughs) 11 years ago you know they're from japan and china and you name it they were here and uh, watching the world pause and hold their breath collectively, mm-hmm. because again, we watch what's happening in Europe, what's happening in the Middle East, and there's always that fear that it could spread and become a much bigger event. And it's on people's minds. Everyone's watching the news. No one likes it when there's a conflict or a war happening and people are dying. No one likes that. And you can feel the collective stress level that everyone's experiencing. So it went to the top of the news page. And of course, in the US, it's Thanksgiving. So it's typically a quiet news day, everything's closed. Mm-hmm. So it had a second day of riding through the media. And and we did interviews again, all day with media yesterday. And, and finally, today, it's slowing down. But still, everybody's talking about it. everywhere I go, everybody's talking about it. And I said, you know, someone must ask me, what's the takeaway? What's the lesson? And, and I would say for me, it's, it's ironic that this happened during Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is a time when you give thanks, a time when you're grateful for all the things you have in your life. And sometimes, unfortunately, we have to lose things before we really appreciate them and stop taking them for granted. And I think the fact that we temporarily lost our freedom temporarily, uh, the world, you know, was coming back into a major conflict into our backyard in our minds. And and the fact that it didn't end up happening and we were able to exhale, I think it gave me a chance to say, you know what, man, I'll tell you, we live in the best countries in the world. We're so lucky. We're so fortunate. We're so blessed. And and I thought, I can't wait to take another trip over just because I can and because it's in our backyard. And it just, again, and it's a, it's a positive way of looking at a negative thing that sometimes you need to lose things to really appreciate them. In this case, you know, we didn't lose them, but, but you could the takeaway is yeah. appreciate what you got. We got it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.